You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This episode features an introduction to the Dockland Encounter Symposium, which took place in the National Maritime Museum of Ireland on the 22nd of June 2017. The event was organised by Joanna Robinson and recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features some introductory remarks from Joanna Robinson and Richard McCormack, President of the Maritime Institute of Ireland. Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming to Dockland Encounters today. I'm really delighted to see you all here and I'm sure it's going to be an excellent day of papers. Dockland Encounters really marks the start of a new research project for me. The idea came out of my current research project on the way that literary works are mobilised to talk about large-scale urban development in the 19th century. And given the mass expansion of docks in this period, these spaces have long occupied my peripheral vision. But I always felt um, that docks were too curious to be confined to a single book chapter, and so I've held back on um, starting it until I could do it properly, really. Um, The high walls of docks frame an initial point of contact between local and foreign peoples and objects. They are sites which draw together people from across the social spectrum, including skilled and unskilled workers, businessmen, missionaries and prostitutes. And curiouser and curiouser and curiouser, docks also permit real and imagined spaces to overlap and interact. Standing by water certainly gives pause for reflection. Describing a morning at the Victoria Docks in 1857, for instance, a correspondent for Leisure Hour comments that even when ships are here penned in their tranquil fold, they inspire the imagination to go wandering over the illimitable ocean. To use Mary Louise Pratt's term, therefore, docks can be perceived as contact zones. And the purpose of today's symposium is to take some initial steps into analysing what kinds of encounters these spaces enable. I'm delighted to be able to welcome our six speakers today, whose different academic and professional backgrounds promise to give us varied insights into Dockland encounters. Thank you all very much for agreeing to generously give up your time to speak today and allow us to podcast your papers for the UCD Humanities Institute website. And I must also thank the UCD Humanities Institute and Seed Funding Scheme, which have given financial support to this event, and to Valerie Norton and Richard McCormick, who have given their expertise. Richard is the president of the Maritime Institute of Ireland and has kindly agreed to say a few words of welcome to introduce this wonderful venue. Before taking up the captaincy of this museum, Richard travelled the world as a fisherman and worked in various managerial roles with maritime authorities, most recently at BIM, the Irish Sea Fisheries Board, where he was responsible for training fishermen in ice plant operations. I really hope that you enjoy today And please join me in welcoming Richard McCormick. It gives me great pleasure on behalf of the Maritime Institute of Ireland, which actually owns this museum, uh, to invite you all here to to have you all here today at this event. And uh, it's not the first time that UCD has been involved, as you will see in a few minutes. We've been dealing with them for a number of years now. And it's always been a, a most positive and useful development for us that we've gone this way. Um, the museum, which you are in now, is a 180-year-old building. 
It was originally known as the Mariner's Church. And it was built for the people who were in port of Dunleary uh, in ships or coming in and out of it in, 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 in Royal Navy ships to, to worship when they were ashore. So it was a very close connection down the years with the Royal Navy as such. Um, unfortunately, uh, as after independence, the number of worshippers dropped dramatically here and eventually uh, it closed down in 1972. And we took it over here in 1974. Originally we leased it and there was little or no money and they raised money through uh, dances and parties and raffles and all the usual things that bring cash into small organisations like our own to make things happen. And eventually by the sweat and the sometimes the tears of volunteers, uh, this building started to emerge as quite a credible museum. Perhaps not as swanky as some of the other museums you see around the world, but remember it is done by volunteers and it's done by people who don't get paid. They all put their time and their effort in and in some cases that time and that effort is very, very substantial. Uh, it was renovated about uh, 2005 and was closed for six years because the building itself uh, was beginning to deteriorate quite seriously so that we couldn't really keep it open to the public. There was uh, dry rot on the roof and there were many other problems which uh, had to be solved. So we were very lucky to get a grant through the Department of the Taoiseach. And eventually in 2012 it was opened by Michael D. Higgins for the second time uh, the place was opened. And Michael D. Higgins, like all patrons uh, of the Maritime Institute, uh, all patrons of the Maritime Institute are actually presidents of Ireland. And that's been a tradition that's lasted for many, many years. As I said, it's run by volunteers, around 40 of them altogether. But we also have community employment staff. It's a very important component because these people will bring skills that they would have learned outside in the building trade, administration, and so on and so forth. And without them, we couldn't function. They will do the jobs that the volunteers are not capable of doing or don't wish to do because they're bringing these skills in here. But they're also learning other skills and leaving us and moving on to other things. And that's a good thing for them. A bit of a loss for us, I'm afraid. But we will do almost anything to raise money here. Obviously, we have admission charges. We do a lot of musical events. We have a shop, as you can see, coming in. We do lectures, symposiums, art exhibitions, book lunches, bucket collections, men's sheds, you name it. Uh, and one of the most important things that has developed over the last few years is weddings. Uh, we are the second most popular venue for humanist and civil weddings now in Dublin. So if anybody's thinking about a wedding or planning a wedding, please come to me afterwards and we'll make some arrangements. Um, I was very intrigued when Joanna approached us about this whole idea of uh, a Docklands Encounter Symposium. I hadn't thought of it, and in fact it's a very clever title. It's a very clever title because so much of what people who go to sea experience happens through docks or ports, and extended even further than that, fishing ports and so forth. And I think that it is a very, very fertile area for research. Not much looked at. Now, I would also say this is a topic that John Brannigan and I discussed about three years ago about the whole question of the maritime as such, the bigger picture of the maritime, that in large measure it has been ignored, particularly so in Ireland. I think we just turned our backs on the sea after independence and never really looked at it again. Surprising insofar as being an island, you have to bring stuff in, you have to bring sell goods out, and the sea is the only way it's going to do it. 
but there you be and such is it. And as time went on, we got involved in a couple of symposiums with UCD and these have expanded now into this as the third one as such and I'm very pleased to have it. The whole question of the maritime needs to be looked at in greater depth because it's very much a cultural entity in its own right. It's got its own vocabulary. There's not many people will be able to dig into the things that sailors talk about, the language they use. Now, not the bad language, but the language that you know expresses the work that they do. Uh, you know, Marlin Spike and stuff like that. They're not. They're not generally known or not spoken about in the in the normal community. And that vocabulary and that heritage is very, very much in danger of being lost as time goes on. There are a lot less people going to sea nowadays. Ships have become an site more efficient. They need lesser crews. And people don't necessarily continue in families in the maritime tradition. It has died out. It died out in my family and many others, because my family are in a show, of course, which is the centre of the universe as far as I'm concerned. Because sailors are offshore most of the time, they've become very self-reliant people. They have to. They're working in a very hostile environment. And they often hear the phrase, worst thing happens at sea, and very often it does. But you don't often hear what that is. They don't tend to repeat it. Uh, and when they actually get around to speaking, you will find them uh, recounting a tale which you find, if you're not used to the sea, being incredibly dramatic. But as far as the man who goes to sea or the woman who goes to sea is concerned nowadays, it is just everyday life. It's no more than that but it's very quickly forgotten. And therein lies what I call the fundamental weakness in safeguarding the, the maritime sector's legacy. Because when you're out of sight, you're out of mind, and this is especially so when you're seeking favours, shall we say, from the public uh, domain or officialdom. Uh, very often it comes down to its economic worth and nothing else. And to me, I think we're worth more than that. And when seafaring employment ceases... It's sad because the seafarer comes ashore. No matter how skillful they are, the skills they've learned at sea are not transferable immediately. Some of them are. Obviously, uh, the ability to be able to stand up to, 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 to rough conditions is um, and deal with adversity. That's just part of it. Uh, but very often, they have to change the whole way of thinking. They forget about it. The camaraderie that they had at sea with all the people they knew, it sort of dissipates. And as they drift into shore occupations... Very few people really care about what they have to say or their experiences. So they simply stop talking about them. And all that historical information disappears and is lost. And I think these type of events are opportunities for trying to get these thoughts, images, ideas that were off the past or off the present even back out into the public domain. Um, you often find, if you look at our library there, you'll find that very senior naval commanders in the World Wars were very quick at writing their memoirs. They wanted to get their retaliation in first before somebody else did, uh, highlighted their mistakes. But when it comes to ordinary seamen, when it comes to merchant navy people, only the more prominent captains would probably sit down and write their, uh, write their histories. Um, your average merchant seaman, who probably went through quite a lot in his life, wouldn't even think about it. And fishermen in particular, and, and, and whether you realise what that's where I started my life at, 
for seven years of my life I was a fisherman, uh, are appalling. And I'm probably just as guilty as anybody else in not getting things down. I'm trying to do it now, but rather late in life. But it, it, it is one of these things which we miss out. We, and especially people on smaller boats, because they work very close to the elements. They see it as it is. Uh, it's not like being 30 or 40 feet above the sea. You're actually in among it. You're there and you have to understand it. And that type of folklore that they pick up is just incalculable. And it's, it is being lost bit by bit. Um, one of the nice things I heard about recently uh, was uh, there were studies being done into how people named parts of the shoreline in Ireland, which is great. You know, why did you get it? Why was it called the Carrick Dove? You know, th these are rocks which exist. I can think of them just in, in, in the file where I, I spent very many happy childhoods. Um, and I think these need to be preserved. And the stories, the yarns, the records that people have in their heads and are not very really good at writing down need to be extracted by those who are educated and understand the value and the worth of them. And I hope this is what we will get out of this today. And the good thing is that the universities are now taking an interest because they have a, an audience uh, which, if they instill in them a love of the maritime, they can make something out of it. And that's one thing that's happened over the last few years. John Brannigan, every single year, brings his students down here and they really do enjoy themselves. Um, it is also important that the writers, the artists, the poets, the folklorists and the singers keep up the tradition of looking at, at the maritime and bringing it forward for everybody to hear about. Because there is an incredible wealth of maritime history, historical folklore and it's been lost bit by bit by bit. And even though the arts community may have a sort of romantic view of the sea, which is probably at variance with reality, it doesn't matter. It's bringing it out. It's important. And we want to see more of it here. And the nice thing that I've seen in, in the last few um, uh, years is that you take the Port of Dublin, apart from what we're doing here ourselves, which we can only do as a resource permit, but the Port of Dublin have been doing quite a lot of good stuff on the heritage front. They have restored the diving bell there. And I actually knew a man who worked in that diving bell. He only died about three years ago. Uh, they have commissioned quite a number of public uh, works of art uh, which they have installed in various parts in the Keys. Um, they had a musical last year, which is really good, uh, called Starboard Home, which was for celebrating 1916. And they also had this year uh, an art exhibition by Eugene van Meigen, which is, who is a, uh, an artist, or was an artist, in the port of Antwerp. And that was, uh, that was on display for about six months, and it was well worth seeing for those who were interested. So a lot is happening. But I'll quickly go through just a few slides here. This was us. This is our very first uh, museum. We were, we were set up in 1941, but the truth about the matter was we never really had a home for a museum. We're a bit like a foundling hospital. Stuff arrives here. Uh, you, you expect to see a baby in a, maybe lying outside the door, but it's very often books or it's very often some artefact, and we take it in. We never refuse it, and we try to make something out of it. We now, of course, are in a much more beautiful situation where we have the lexicon right beside us, very nice waterfalls, and I think the, the vista facing us now and the, the optimism that people feel here now is very tangible in this museum. But it wasn't always like this. When we took it over in 1973, that's what we had to face. It was a, a pretty well in poor condition. A lot of rot and wood had to be destroyed and get thrown out. Time went on. We built this room here, which was called after Anthony Lawler, by the way. Uh, you might have, those who know the history, and particularly on the naval side, will know that Colonel Anthony Lawler uh, was very prominent in the Civil War, and he was one of the founding members of the Maritime Institute of Ireland. 
It was opened by Michael D. Higgins, as you can see here, and my predecessor, Pat Award, is wearing the medallions there uh, on the day, and it was a, a very joyous day after six years of closure. It's a beautiful place, and you're going to see more of that as the day goes on, beautiful glass, and those particular ones there were donated by the Harbour Board. Uh, they're the Padder Lamb windows, and there are people who come in here to see the Padder Lamb windows. They're in the cafe that we have leased out, and you're very welcome to have a look at them if you're interested in that. We have a very fine model of the RMS Leinster, and next year is a very big year here because the centenary of the Leinster, which went down only a few miles away from here at the Kish Bank, uh, with 550 people lost on it. And in the audience is Philip LeCain, and you're very welcome to speak to him because he's probably the leading authority on it. And uh, he's, uh, he's written a book about the Leinster. The church is literally peppered with memorials. The middle one there is the War Memorial. It's not the only War Memorial that was here. And you can go up and look at it. There's First World War and Second World War, and there's actually one person from the, from the RMS Leinster on it. And on the left-hand side is the memorial to Captain Hutchinson, William Hutchinson, who was responsible, one of those responsible for this church being built. And remember, it was built very soon after the, the works started in the harbour, about 20-odd years afterwards. Then, as I said, we started with doing fairly large public events, much bigger than this one here, about 100, 120 people with the Maritime Heritage Gathering. Continued on with John Branding, who came down one day and said, would you be interested in doing something in the Irish Sea here? And he said, of course we would. That's what we, we like doing. And... Uh, UCD got involved with that and it worked out very, very well. It was a very successful one. And then we moved on to the Women in the Sea, which I think is probably the only one that was ever done in this country. And it's on podcast, by the way. It's on our website now. We just put it up recently and if anybody wants to listen to it, it's there. We've had many famous ships. This was HMS Dublin. Now we have the battle standard of HMS Dublin, which fought in the Battle of Jutland with a great big hole in it. And it still smells of tar from the engine. Uh, it still smells probably the same as it did got, got hit on the on, on, on in the Battle of Jutland. It was in the Dardanelles, and there was uh, it was it was um, it, it it used to come in and out of here. Quite a lot of men from this area would have been on her as well. And as you can see up on the left hand side, you can see a spire, two, two spires there. The one on the left is us, and the one on the right is St Michael's. And I still haven't figured out which one is the highest because there used to be competition in Dublin between Catholic churches and Protestant churches. Every time one was built, they wanted to go another few feet above. Then we have the famous Helga, which is very much associated with this port. Um, and it would have had its own dockland encounters up in Dublin in 1916, which I'm sure many of you know about. Other types of encounters, not necessarily of a port, but an encounter nonetheless, were these photographs, which we found in our archive. We didn't even know we had this, and probably nobody's ever seen them. Uh, we reckon this is the Gallipoli campaign in 1916. And if you look at the one at the top, I reckon what they're doing here is they're disembarking from a ship ready to go ashore into what is a very primitive landing craft. And you can see the, where the man steers is it's protected by metal. And he, I don't know how many men are on that, but just imagine a shell hitting that at any stage. It would have been an absolute disaster. And that was one of the early type landing crafts. We reckon that the the stern area, which is here, is where, the, uh, where they actually disembarked from. Everybody knows about Irish shipping, and Irish shipping disappeared regrettably. But one of the ships uh, which has been celebrated here is the Irish Pine. If you go over your head here, you'll see a number of paintings by Kenneth King, which includes the Irish Pine as well. That's the more modern one, the replacement after the war. That's the one that was lost during the war with all hands. There were about 30-odd men lost in her. Going into harbours and encountering fishermen is probably one of the most useful things you can do in many ways. 
They do a lot more than just fish. A lot of them had a very, very career. And I'm going to show you one now in a minute. If you look, there was a man up here. You can see him with the tiller just there. I knew that man from the time I was five. He was called Jim Clark, Nobby Clark, from a port called Greencastle up in Donegal, where my family come from. And Jim always had a bit missing out of his ear. There was a big lump missing out of it. Uh, and he wasn't the only one around Greencastle. Uh, he had been in the Royal Naval Reserve and ended up in the First World War. But in all the time I knew Jim, which was about 12 years, and we used to go down and mend nets and all sorts of stuff, and he's the one that got me interested in fishing, Jim never once mentioned that he had been on HMS Caroline, which was at the Battle of Jutland. He was the helmsman at the Battle of Jutland on that ship. <coughs> he never did, and they never talked. Uh, the only time you get these men to talk is when they'd be, maybe it's a huddled down below in a boat like that. It was only a day boat. Brewing tea, which would be black tea, as black as you could get it. And they have a wee cup for the young fella, which of course was me. Uh, they were very kind, I must admit. They were great men. But the history that these people have behind them is incredible. He was also in the Empress of Ireland, which was a disaster, uh, which happened around, I think, 1912, in the St. Lawrence uh, Seaway, where she sank and a lot of people were drowned on it. So these people are worth talking to in their own right, if you can get a hold of them. Every ship goes somewhere. Uh, that's the Ross Valiant up around Norway. I was in her a long, long time ago. We were on three-month trips in those ships. Uh, the main encounter we would have, of course, with the customs man, first and foremost, and any other official that would be around as well. Uh, going further, you have uh, another ship called uh, the Northern Jewel in City Shorter. That was a Dockland encounter of a different kind. And if you looked at a wagon, do you see that uh, truck see at the front there? The hurry-up wagon was the police used it to take people away and put them away for a few days for misbehaviour, maybe up the town or elsewhere. So that was another type of encounter that you met with officialdom. When you see them in harbour, they don't look all that exciting. They just look scruffy, dirty old ships. But by God, some of those ships went through amazing things and some of the people on them. And when you see the crew getting ashore, they are certainly ready for a dockland encounters, depending on their ages. And we won't go into the detail. And uh, certainly they probably couldn't tell their mothers about it either. But... Uh, there were many different types of people of all races. Uh, a lot of bass fishermen, surprisingly enough, who'd been on the run from Franco, who were based in Grimsby. But they were all known as, uh, if you were on the bigger ships, you'd be at sea for three weeks, you got three days off, the three-day millionaire. And I think when you're looking at Dockland encounters and trying to understand where people that you will meet are coming from, you've got to explore what they're doing at sea because... These, these, these actions that they go through, whether they're in the Naval Service, and we have a representative from the Naval Service here today. Uh, we also have Joe Vardy at the back, who was in the Merchant Navy as well, myself in the fishing industry. You need to know what, where they're coming from. Sometimes you will hear they did dreadful things or got into fights and so on and so forth. Sometimes they're just letting off steam. Sometimes they went through a terrible uh, experience at sea and somebody got killed. That particular ship, the Ross Tiger, three men were lost in her in her career. But that's life, and that's the way it is. The final encounter you do not want to have when you're a fisherman is something like that. That was a ship called the Scarlet Buccaneer. I must have done about six or eight trips to her myself a long, long time ago. And she ended up uh, coming into Holt Harbour in an immersive gale, and uh, they just couldn't find the way in, and they misjudged completely, and she ended up on the back of the pier, and that's what happens when you make a mistake, and that's an encounter with a harbour you do not want to have. So that's it. Thank you.